Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Our guest today is the Right Reverend Marianne Buddy. Bishop Buddy is the Bishop of Washington, D.C. She is the spiritual leader of over 40,000 Episcopalians in 89 congregations and 20 Episcopal schools in D.C. and in four counties in Maryland. So, you know, she's got a few things on her plate. And then COVID-19 hit. It probably goes without saying, but Bishop Buddy lives in one of the most complex areas for managing health and safety regulations. If you've ever lived in the D.C. area, you know that D.C. kind of flows into Maryland, which kind of flows into Virginia, which kind of flows into D.C. Folks from all over the mid-Atlantic are crossing through her jurisdiction and come under her oversight. Now, since states are on their own to decide how to handle the COVID crisis, her office has a complex set of rules and regulations to juggle as they figure out the work of ministry and equipping others to minister. Father Jeff Hansen spent some time with Bishop Buddy to find out how things look on a diocesan level. For instance, what is on the mind of a leader in such a complex place? What kinds of issues is she navigating? How does she lead her people to stay safe in the most obvious sense, while also to boldly be the people of God? How and when should we return to business as usual, and what will that business even mean? Finally, What are the theological issues at stake, underlying what the next steps should be? supposed to be talking about is the decision making that goes into deciding how and when to return to something like normalcy, if that's even the way to, to put this. I wonder if there's a specific challenge in your diocese. Is there something specific about the Diocese of Washington, D.C. that you think is maybe unusual or different from other places? 
I suspect we have more in common with other dioceses than we differ, but one complexity is that there are two distinct jurisdictions in the diocese. There's the District of Columbia and the state of Maryland, because four counties of the uh, state of Maryland are included in the Diocese of Washington. And similarly, because we're right next door to Virginia and the Potomac River is a pretty fluid boundary, no pun intended, but there's just a lot of traffic back and forth between Washington and Virginia. We really have to pay attention to what three different governmental and health uh, bodies are saying. That was challenging in the beginning as things were closing down because they weren't in alignment. And there was confusion all around. And so the process of shutting things down was choppy. I am trying to lead in such a way that I make a decision that affects everyone so that I'm not having some congregations have one policy and other congregations have another. And so far we've done that, but our congregations include Washington National Cathedral, which has a reach and a capacity that is both national and, and to some degrees international. And then we have congregations that are among, the, you know, like small congregations, just like anywhere else. I don't think we have any churches that are 10 people or less. And so now there isn't any congregation that could meet as it would normally under the restrictions that apply. Uh, what will be challenging is if restrictions are lifted, as I expect they will be gradually, and that there will be, you know, sort of gradations of gatherings that are allowed, how to handle that with congregations that have such a range of size and scope. I guess some degree of potential impact by the by the virus itself, although Maryland has been hit pretty hard. And even though some counties are hit harder than others, there is a sense in the state that everyone's in it together. So I'm, those are some of the thoughts that are in my mind as, as we go forward. Yeah, those are some practical issues in a way, right? And that, that is a demanding set of difficulties. I have to confront very small groups all the way up to something like the scope and the scale of the National Cathedral. But what do you think about theologically are the issues that you would most want to put at the center of your reflections when you think about what the next steps should be? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I feel that from a theological perspective, we are trying to discern how... In the, in the broadest sense, trying to discern how to be faithful to the will of God and, and where God's spirit is, is moving to, to help human beings respond to this, uh, to the pandemic and to the, to the efforts, the very human efforts to try and contain it. And where does the church, as a reflection of the body of Christ or an expression of the body of Christ, what is our role? How do we function? And how are we, um, how do we see ourselves not as set apart from the communities, but a part of them? Do you know, I mean, I, on some level, we are a distinct fellowship, but we are united with our brothers and sisters across the broader communities. And how do we act in such a way that is reflective of the God of love that we seek to follow and emulate in the person of Jesus? So those are some of the things when you, know, you try to put a theological perspective to say, where do we perceive and do our best to follow the stirrings of God's spirit among us and through us? Part of what I find myself wondering is, have we been instructed about the will of God or, or something about, say, how to love one another better as a result of this experience and that we can maybe take with us on the other side? Right. Well, I certainly hope so. Um, whenever, a, you know, whenever a human community experiences trauma like this, it, it feels like 
all of those questions of, you know, the Odyssey and of presence and all those things come up. You know, we're not the first to have asked them and we're not suffering to the degree that many of our fellow human beings are suffering both across the planet and throughout time, not to minimize the suffering that people are experiencing. But you hear what I'm saying? I mean, we it sort of casts us right in the boat with humankind, right? So there's just, we're right in the boat with everybody else. And so there's a humility, I think, that... Um, I'm coming away with that I think is a healthy a healthy one and also a one of servanthood in a time when you know I, I don't blame God for things like this but I also don't expect God to deliver Christians in a way that's different from the rest of humankind I think we're we're in this with our fellow human beings. We have some responsibilities that are are focused on what's what is in the common good for all of creation and all of God's children. We have to think as as with our arms locked with our fellow human beings in this one and with a with an eye towards uh, compassion and service sacrificial love and wondering you know how do we interpret suffering and in the beginning i don't think you try to interpret it you sort of interpret it for other people you come alongside it or you are asked internally to endure it but it's not something that you necessarily then immediately take a a dispassionate view of and say, oh, well, look at these human beings suffering. I mean, you can, and again, don't mean that in a negative way, but to say the first response is, is compassion and solidarity and, and what can we do to help? And then some of the larger issues of what's going to be left when it's over, how healthy our churches were and which ones are going to make it and all of those questions, which are then in some ways, those are institutional questions, you know, like um, just like any other so, um, and what will resurrect, if some die, what will resurrection look like? I mean, all of those, you know, all of those questions. Sometimes like my head just starts spinning and I have to just pray, right? I just have to surrender uh, what I don't know and what I can't control and do my best to lead our people. Yeah, and it occurs to me that in a position like yours, a lot of what you have to do is informed by experts, certainly mm-hmm. now. And, and we recognize that experts disagree. But when it comes to things like finances or public health, right, these are areas in which you end up being the person who has to make a decision that's informed by experts of various kinds of opinions. But you're not necessarily an expert in those things yourself. And so how do you do that? Or how do you think about that obligation? Well, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of listening and paying attention to voices that are from um, areas of expertise that are not my own. Um, I try not to do it alone. I mean, I try to have other people in the discerning circle with me. I think that leads to a healthier process in the end, particularly when we're in, in a time of great uncertainty. And so I listen very carefully to not only the voices of expertise, as you say, but also uh, the sound counsel of people that I trust and that are trusted in the body here. And so far, I've not had a, a situation where we've had significant internal division within the diocese. Um, a few instances, but nothing, for the most part, we have been very united and there hasn't been a lot of differences of perspective on what we should be doing. So far, and I'm grateful for that. A little bit of difference on the issue of should people close down their churches entirely and not live stream at all, or should you know is it acceptable for people to go into their churches and live stream? That's the level of disagreement, right? Which is pretty minor because I've given people complete permission to do whatever they feel is best, provided that they are staying within the guidelines that are have been presented to us by the civic authorities. Should it be that we have some differences, like like say for example. It's, it's allowed for assemblies of 50 or more to gather or 50 or less to gather. That will be a challenging 
time? You know, what would what would that be like? I think I'm I'm still landing on the the desire. And I had to say this to the to the dean of the cathedral just before Easter Sunday. I said, look, if because jurisdictions around us were making the decision, they were closing everything down, right? They were closing churches down for even recording. Uh, the Diocese of Virginia did that and the Diocese of Pennsylvania did that. And that would have been devastating for the cathedral It would and, and others as well, but particularly for the cathedral in terms of all the work they've been doing. And I just said to the dean, I said, look, I just need to warn you that this might be coming. And if it is, it's I can't have a policy that's for you that's separate from everybody else. And I'd like to I'd like to continue to lead that way if at all possible. But that doesn't mean that there won't be a situation where I'll need to make a change in that. I, I could foresee a situation where that would be a very um, challenging thing to do, but I don't know yet. The other thing I don't know, and this is something that I just heard someone say, you know, if the people don't feel safe, it doesn't really matter <laughs> what the policies are. Like, will people just stay home, right? How safe will people? And I was talking to this with one of our larger congregations just before this call, you know, what if, you know, so what if the churches are open and people just feel like, well, I'm not going, you know, I mean, in the beginning, when the when we were just starting to shut things down, we felt like, you know, we really have to shut things down because otherwise our most loyal people who happen to be in the most vulnerable categories are going to come to church no matter what, right? That's just what they do. But now I think people are genuinely scared and are really social distancing and are paying attention very carefully. So what what will it be like? When, when will it feel safe? And how will we need to change our practices? And that's not unique to the Episcopal Church. That's true for all churches, all public events. You know, that that will be an interesting time. And will we have to wait until there's a vaccine, for example? I, I don't know. I just don't know. I agree with you. And I wonder about the extent to which, say, people are making use of live streaming or other alternatives to actually being physically present. And they are getting out of the habit, perhaps, of being physically present. To what extent does that translate into a long-term change, right? Is it possible that, that a certain percentage of people simply won't come back in the near term at all or ever even? I suppose that must be a worry of yours as well. Right. I mean, I think if you if you look at it from a more dispassionate view, just watching of trends, um, you know, trends in society and trends in human behavior. Several people have said in you know in my hearing that this is this is a trend accelerator. That whatever trends were in play, um, these will accelerate them. And so, for example, decline in Sunday worship attendance. If that was a trend that was already happening that this would accelerate it. I'm not a professional social scientist, but that makes sense to me. If I think of other organizations, not the church, and, and just do a parallel, if there were fewer people going to movie theaters before this, would this accelerate the trend? Probably, because, you know, why Why would you go to a movie theater if you feel safe watching a movie on your on your own device, right? So those are those will be adaptive realities for us as Christians, because we have held, at least in the Episcopal Church, we have held such a primacy on Sunday worship, carrying really the, the full burden of how we define, I mean, not really, but for so many of us, it's like our principal definition of what it means for us to be connected to our communities and our, our emphasis on sacramental worship, right? And so if that is, if that is significantly uh, diminished as a result of this, then what is our ministry? What is what is it? Because certainly the 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 need for a reconciling, redemptive relationship to God in Christ isn't going to go away. It's just that the way we have given it or presented it will be less needed or less desired, and you know, the Spirit will will find ways. Right? It just it's just a question of where will where will we fall in that new reality? The one thing I take comfort in, I Jeff, and I really do I do do believe this is that I'm seeing a far higher degree of adaptation 
in our congregations than I would have ever had reason to predict, given how slow most Episcopal congregations are to embrace certain trends in society. You know, we're very sort of trendy in some ways, but in other ways, we're about as antiquated as you can be. And it's been fun to watch congregational leaders, both lay and clergy, just step into this new frontier. But it's going to be a long haul. And so we have to learn some, we have to strengthen some muscles we didn't even know we had. like we've heard so much about what parishes can't do, right? And we've been thinking about this time in terms of prohibition, restriction, right? That's unavoidable, right? I mean, obviously, that's a huge part of the reality. I did sort of want to ask you if there was something you think parishes can do, you know, and if you even have some specific examples, perhaps, of, say, something that parishes have done that struck you as inspirational or perhaps pointing toward a future, you know, a a different future, but one perhaps with some promise. Right. Well, there there seems to be at least two major lanes that will be open in new ways for all for all Christians. And some some traditions, not Episcopalian, have really lived into these um, far more robustly than we. So maybe we'll learn more from other traditions. And one is obviously the use of technology and the connectivity that technology allows. The fact that you and I are having this conversation the way we're having it, it's not as good as not as relational as being in the same room, but it's pretty amazing that we can have this connection. And so to lean into uh, adaptations for connection and engagement and worship and spiritual practice through technology feels like that's sort of stating the obvious. And the second one might be allowing people to engage And when we can gather in small groups again, allow people to engage in Christian community and practice in our tradition, less clergy focused and has more of a home church or communal or neighborhood base to it, where smaller groups of people are gathering to support each other in the Christian life and that the wider church may be a a source of resource and inspiration and of mentoring and guidance maybe, but that the real the sort of transformative ministry is in in smaller relationships. And actually, that's not that different from what's happening now. It's just not going to have the overlay of all the other things that we, that we carry with us as churched Christians in this institutional reality. I do wonder about things like property and buildings, you know, what, what's going to happen to all those. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it, you just can't help but wonder. You know, that, that line, I think it's from an E.L. Doctor, you know, writing a novel is like driving a car in, in the fog with your headlights on, you know, and you can't, you can't see very far, but you can make the whole journey that way. And I feel like we're sort of driving in the fog with our headlights on, you know, we really can't see very far. But if we are faithful, try to be faithful. And, and I do listen to people who try to cast out further, but there's so much we'll know in two weeks that we don't know now, right? I was thinking about this. I wonder how you feel about this way of putting it, but I was reading about how part of what we need to be prepared for in the future is that hospitals, for example, need to be ready at any moment, say for double their capacity, right? For the next emergency, right? One needs to be prepared for a recurrence. And I guess I was thinking about that in terms of say parish life. Is there some way of thinking about or some way of preparing for parishes to, in a sense, prepare for greater capacity in a similar emergency situation? And maybe that in a way takes some emphasis away from things like facilities, 
right? Which in a sense, we've not been able to utilize, right? We haven't been able to utilize our precious buildings, but in a sense, we need, we need to think about perhaps greater capacity in a way of a more spiritual or uh, kind, as opposed to say physical capacity, right? And I just wonder whether that's, does that strike you as a helpful way potentially of thinking about it and thinking about preparing for the future? Yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great image. I wonder what our role might be in the societal reckoning that this is for the United States without becoming overly shrill or partisan, but simply to say we've allowed collectively a winnowing out of the resources that a country needs to deal with the unexpected. And that's true across the board. And we also have allowed partisan polarities to cripple common sense decision-making over two decades, right? I mean, it's gone back a long time. And we've also spent a lot of money in our flush years, which means when we need to actually, you know, spend money that's needed in a time like this, we're actually, we don't have it. You know, we're just racking up even more debt. And so I just wonder if there's a place for the church in a post-COVID-19 world that's about reweaving the fabric of, of the society, right? And I'd love for that. The, the fault lines in our society now are just revealed for how incredibly, not only how cruel they are, but how unworkable they are. That to imagine that we could have so many people in our society uninsured at a crisis like this when we're all in it together, right? We all need to get tested. We all need to be cared for. We all, you know, all of those things are just so, so interesting. And, and so like, how do Christian people um, engage that as, as part of our prayer to help, you know, help God's kingdom come? What is our role in that? Because I'd love to, I'd love to come out of this with a sense of moral purpose, you know, like we've been given a mission and it's, it's, yes, it's to help people know the the love of God revealed in Jesus, but also to live in such a way that, you know, people might say, sure, I don't know about Jesus, but man, those Christians, they're the ones you want to go to, right? Because they are just the most amazing people. And so I, I think about, I mean, just, these are just musings, but like, how could we rise from this? And I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Don't hear me say like, we're not doing any of that now, but it feels like such a time of universal reckoning. And we're a part of that. We're a part of the sin and maybe we could be part of the redemption. And uh, if God would allow that, that's what I'm hoping for. I, I don't know if you have kids, but I have kids and grandchildren and I just, I just would love the world to be a healthier place as a result of this, you know. Your thoughts uh, bring to mind something that happened to us this week. Parish here has the city's longest running free meal for the homeless or for anybody who needs it, really, every Tuesday night. And we've had to make that an event where we can't, as we would prefer, have our guests come inside the parish hall and sit down. But we've had to have meals prepared individually and then be distributed. But in order to distribute them, we actually opened the west doors to the church, which is the, you know, sort of the large main door. And we've been able to hand out the meals through the door. And so in a way that suddenly became much more visible. I mean, it's gone on here for over 40 years. But for the first time, we had neighbors living in the area, you know, walking their dogs, passing by and saying, it's really terrific to see that you're still doing this, right? It's really great that you're still keeping this going. That was something that we don't often hear, I think partly because... It's just not often that perceptible. People don't see the fact that we have a hundred homeless folks inside the church, but if they're all outside and actually they were all rather dutifully standing at a respectful distance from one another as they took turns receiving their meal and 
So it was amazingly sort of orderly, even though it was a quite a disruption to our normal routine. But in that, I thought, well, that's interesting because it seemed to me a, a way of perhaps preparing for a future in which our visibility and our faithfulness will need to be more evident. Yeah, I hope so. Now, and I also want to say that, you know, there are a lot of people within our churches who are really, really hurting right now. I mean, really hurting. Like this is a an internal crisis as well as an external one. Both people who are working in healthcare or who are undocumented workers, I mean, they lost their jobs. And so there is both that sense of caring for the body, caring for the body of Christ, and then as the body of Christ caring, a wounded body, doing what, what whatever feels is our call in the wider community. I, I am I'm wondering how we'll be changed by this. At, at the cathedral Easter Sunday service, the, actually the director of music uh, there sang, uh, We Shall Be Changed by from Handel's Messiah, um, that wonderful aria. And it, it's like, it's just constantly this, we shall be changed, we shall be changed, we shall be changed. And I thought, we shall be changed. And I wonder how we'll be changed. And that will be changed as a given. But how will we be changed? And how can we be changed for the better? And in And to become more you know, more Christ-like. It's, it's kind of scary, you know, it's like, okay, change is coming and could it could ask a whole lot of all of us. It is asking a lot. So how, how can we pray that God will use this to change us to be more like Christ? Ask for our hearts to grow, you know, our capacity to love to grow, our capacity to suffer to grow um, in solidarity and when we can't avoid our own suffering, right? It's a crucible moment, isn't it? I mean, I pray we're worthy of it. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.